0: listening to a sermon from the pulpit of redeemer church a pca congregation in hudson ohio for more information visit us at redeemerohio.org well if you would turn with me in your bibles to the old testament book of job Tonight, we're looking together at chapter 42. You will find this on page 446 of the Pew Bible. We've worked our way selectively through this book, and we've come to the final chapter. And we'll be reading tonight chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of God. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me. I heard heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Well, if you think back to chapter 1, you'll recall that Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He was very prosperous, highly respected, the father of ten children. And of all the people of the East, Job was the greatest. God had richly blessed him. Then you'll remember how Satan challenged the grace of God, claiming that Job was a hypocrite. It's as if he said in so many words, he's in it only for the benefits. He's faithful only because he prospers. So the Lord permitted Satan to assault Job and to afflict him severely. He lost everything, his children, his flocks, his herds, his servants, his reputation. And yet we're told in all this, Job did not sin. Then the devil struck him with sores, and his wife, temporarily insane, said, Curse God and die. And still, in all this, Job did not sin. Then three so-called comforters arrived, but they did anything but comfort him. Because of Job's suffering, they concluded that he was hiding some sort of unconfessed sin. They debated Job. Round and round they went, speech after speech, and the three wrongly accusing Job while Job maintaining his integrity. But the godly man was confused. The swift series of calamities baffled him. It seemed as if God was angry, but Job couldn't understand why he would be. Job had been faithful in worship and service and devotion, his love for neighbor. He asks, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? And to this question and those like it, Job never received answers, at least in this book. But God did not remain silent, and he spoke directly to his suffering servant. Twice the Lord addressed Job and the first time with a panoramic view of creation. It was a powerful reminder that God is the maker of all things, great and small. The second time, he described two monstrous creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan. And these were literal creatures that God made and pointed ultimately to invisible realities. Both Behemoth and Leviathan far exceed man in size and strength. God created man and beast, so who is Job that he would challenge the Almighty? But Behemoth and Leviathan also symbolized the powers of evil. Leviathan's dragon-like description points to the deceitful one himself, John, you remember, in the book of Revelation refers to the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. And the devil is the one who rules over his dark kingdom filled with the sons of pride. But the great enemy of our souls and our salvation will be completely overthrown. And awaiting us in heaven is the crown of life and the throne of glory. So after the second speech... Job is utterly and completely humbled. He's been made ready at this point to confess and admire the divine sovereignty. Verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And here he freely acknowledges the unsearchable greatness of the Lord. He did create all things and he can easily handle Behemoth and Leviathan And thus, with his mind enlightened and his heart enlarged, Job's humility is deepened. He is far more self-aware now. He has this awful apprehension of the majesty of God. And it's a reminder to us, I believe, that when we pray, we should do so with the utmost reverence and filial fear. Because there is no place at the throne of grace for pride or self-conceit. When we pray, we go before an infinite, all knowing, omnipotent God, and He is majestic and He's worthy. And at our best, on our best days, we are unprofitable servants. Do we realize, and I think we do, what a privilege it is, as Elder Miller often says, to have an audience with the Creator? Jesus taught his disciples to begin their prayers with a reverential preface, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So when we approach this magnificent and majestic God, we should always do so with holy awe. And at the same time, interestingly, the Lord Jesus invites us to be bold with our requests. In and through Jesus Christ, we enjoy acceptance with the Father. And he's great, and he wields all power, and nothing is too difficult for him. And yet how often are my petitions so pathetically weak and ineffective? What's that hymn that we sing? You're coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring. For his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. You see, a true biblical understanding of God is a great help to pious humility. I think it was Augustine when he was asked, what are the three greatest virtues of the Christian life? And he said without hesitation, humility, humility, and humility. True humility grows out of a true knowledge of God and ourselves. Think of Abraham. In Genesis 18, he says, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Here we find the father of the faithful recognizing his own relative insignificance. When the sun comes up, the stars begin to fade and they eventually vanish. So when we begin to appreciate God's glory, our importance fades Who are we? We're like a small drop of water compared to the vast oceans of the earth. Elijah wrapped his face in a cloak when God's glory passed in front of him. Isaiah cried out, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. And John, he fell prostrate as though dead when the glorified Christ appeared to him. Job's humility is increased sevenfold when he hears the words of God. And at the same time, he has a much better grasp on his own human limitations. No longer does Job give vent to his impatience and pose these tough questions. He has been brought to the point of despising his own confidence. Verse 3, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge, quoting the Lord? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know, and how those words must have pierced Job's heart, how they must have grieved his soul. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? You see, Job would have been humbled if that was the only thing the Lord had said. How foolish have I been? I was unguarded in my ignorance. His questions were impertinent, and his complaints were totally unwarranted. Who was Job to interrogate the infinite, eternal, and almighty God? It is a sin against the first commandment to charge him foolishly for the hardships that he inflicts on us. Asaph, you'll remember, almost stumbled because he saw the prosperity of the wicked while he was suffering. And he came to his senses and he realized that he had been like a beast toward God and Job had been no different. He allowed his temporal trials to distort temporarily his view of God. And he lost sight of God's infinite wisdom in ordaining whatsoever comes to pass because God's thoughts And God's ways are so profound, they're so deep, that they cannot be fathomed. You and I will spend eternity exploring them, and we'll never reach the bottom. Psalm 139, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, and I cannot attain it. And you know something? You and I often do not understand his purpose, and it can be confusing, But as David reminds us, and as we quoted, the Lord is good and he does good. Sinful, finite creatures have no business passing judgment upon God. One reason that you and I take issue with providence is because we don't understand. We don't know why God ordains it like this, we don't know the purpose that it will serve. And part of maturity, Christian maturity, is learning to be content without knowing the answers. So once again in verse 4, Job quotes the words of God. Here and I will speak, I will question you, Job, and you make it known to me. That was the start of the divine cross-examination which greatly humbled Job. And I think it's difficult for us to imagine just how overwhelming that must have been. Because we're told in Hebrews 10 that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A terrifying thing, according to some translations. And Job is overcome by the sheer majesty and magnificence of the Lord. And if it was overwhelming for a believer like him, it has to be terrifying for the unbeliever. I don't think any preacher has ever spoken more gravely than Jesus Christ about God's severity. Jesus is the one who said this, I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast you into hell. And if nothing else persuades you, then cast your thoughts upon the cross. The sinless Son of God, endured the infinite wrath of God for our imputed sins, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that tells me that if God inflicts such suffering upon his own son, how terrible is it going to be for sinners? If the father did not spare his own beloved son, what will he do with the wicked? What will be the everlasting misery of those who die impenitent? I believe that the punishment and the suffering of hell is, for you and I, utterly inconceivable. Just as the imagination of man cannot possibly envision fully the blessings of heaven, so man's imagination cannot form an adequate picture of the misery in hell. And all who will be damned shall fall into the hands of the living God. And he himself, with his own hand, will punish them for their sins. Infinite will be the penalty of the wicked. Endless will be their sorrows. With wounded conscience, Job felt the weight of his own creaturely ignorance. I had heard of you by the hearing of the year, he said. But now my eye sees you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He had spoken unadvisedly about God. He had questioned his wisdom. And more than once he had even challenged to debate the issue. (laughs) You see, Job was a good man, he was a believing man, but he was a man in need of sanctification. And under the blessing of Christ, his suffering brought about sincere repentance. By grace, we see Job turning away from his bold and curious searching into God's secrets. Because the secret things belong to God, and we have free reign with the things that are revealed. But those secret things, they're his. And at the same time, by grace, Job turns toward the promised Messiah in whom he found life. And he was now willing to rest in Christ rather than demand answers to his questions. And it's not easy to learn that lesson. It's not easy for me, anyway. And we see how hard it was for Job. And I believe sincerely that it was through suffering that he gained a deeper understanding of the Lord. Don't we see this in Scripture? that God often meets us far more intimately in the valleys than on the mountaintops. Isaiah spoke of the Valley of Vision in chapter 22, which is where God was known, the Valley of Vision. It refers to Jerusalem, of course, the place where the prophets received their revelation, the place where his name was great, the place where God made himself known and entrusted with his oracles, and they called it the Valley of Vision. Job had been in a deep valley, and it was there that God spoke to him. I wonder if our afflicted brethren, we have a long list that we pray for every week. I wonder if our afflicted brethren would concur with this assessment. Perhaps they would say that sanctified pain had been a powerful means of grace. Isn't that what David says? It is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I might learn your statutes. And you know something? There are very few in this world who I think would say that it's good to be afflicted. In the midst of suffering, we feel the pain, but we don't yet see the benefit. But upon reflection, we see that God ordains it with infinite wisdom, and he's faithful A father who loves us, he's committed to discipline. Hebrews tells us that he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. And when he afflicts us, he takes away nothing from us but our sin. And so blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. So I think one of the things to take away from this is to rejoice in the spiritual vision that God gives to those who trust in Jesus. By a special sanctifying work of the Spirit, Job began to see more clearly. And as God spoke, Job listened, and his heart and his mind were greatly enlarged. It dispelled more of that darkness with which Job had been born. Because God at first created light, and that's what he does for the believer, gives light. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In the words of John Newton, I was blind, but now I see. And two things take place. First, we are convinced of our own sin and guilt. We need a Savior. Whereas before we lived in ignorance of it, now we become aware of it. We may have talked about sin before, but now we feel the burden of our guilt. That's number one. Number two, we begin to apprehend God's mercy in Christ, far more clearly, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Nothing else will satisfy. Everything else, by comparison, is like dung. And then what follows is this increase of light in progress in sanctification. Because you see, Job was a seasoned believer. Let's not forget that. He was a sincere and faithful worshiper. He already knew God. But there was this need in his life for further increase. And we all need to be refreshed with new illumination from the Lord, further increase, because the knowledge of God is infinite. And too often we forget who he is and what he can do. And new temptations demand fresh applications of truth. And in addition, there is the wisdom that only comes by experience. And it's especially in suffering that we grow in the knowledge of God. That's the word of the cross, isn't it? The word of the cross seems like folly to many, but it is, we're told, the power of God unto salvation. Jesus bore our sins, and we follow him in suffering, and it's sanctifying. It's one of God's best tools for sculpting us to be more like Christ. Suffering. Why else would we die? Our sins are forgiven in Christ. The wages of sin is death, but our sins are forgiven. Why do we die? He prepares us for heaven. It's out of of love that he does so. So let's appreciate the sanctifying benefit of God-ordained suffering. And to do this, we have to understand how to determine what is good. What is good? Let me ask you a question. Do you think that pain is essentially evil? Always evil? No. How do we know what is good? How do we know what pain is? Good cannot be defined by the world standard of evaluation, That which is good must be determined by infinite wisdom. God knows best. He knows what is good for us. He knows what is not good. And the psalmist taught us that God is good and that he does good completely. So whatever he does is good. Whatever he ordains must be good. There is no evil in God and nothing he does can be viewed as bad. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And his goodness is infinite and eternal and unchangeable and absolute. And if we're persuaded of that, then we're prepared to endure whatever he ordains. What's more, we know that he's a God of love. And he loves you and I more than we can ever love ourselves. And that being the case, we may be satisfied with what he calls us to endure. Doesn't the shepherd choose the pastures for the sheep? Whether it's ample or scarce. Doesn't the parent train the child in the right way to go? Not as the child wishes. Doesn't the physician prescribe the patient's cure? He doesn't cure himself. Was it good for Joseph to be assaulted and sold into Egyptian slavery? Was it good that Joseph be falsely accused and imprisoned for his chastity? And yet all sorts of people would have perished if he had been spared. Joseph said to his brothers, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about many people that should be kept alive as they are today. We're tempted to think in the midst of our suffering that God is against us, but in truth, he is always for us. The psalmist tells us explicitly, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. That's what he said, lacks no good thing. We may lack comforts. We may want relief. We may wish for answers. But it's enough for us to know that whatever he gives... And whatever he, what he withholds, that's good. And if it was good for us to have comforts, or if it was good for us to be relieved of pain, God would give it. That's what it says. You and I cannot see the future. We don't know what is best for us. God knows it all. He sees the end from the beginning and everything in between. And if he sends it, it must be good. And if he withholds it, it would have been bad. And if we're convinced of that, then you and I can rejoice in all of our suffering. True happiness does not consist in a pain-free existence with comforts. What is most important is our relationship to and our acceptance with the Lord himself. In Christ, as believers, we are able to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And affliction, as I said, takes nothing away from us but rather helps us to accomplish that end. It conveys grace. It builds character. It increases holiness. It facilitates fellowship. Asaph suffers and was confused when he saw the prosperity of the wicked, and through that experience, he drew closer to God. His desires were sanctified. And so the afflicted believer, the cross-bearing Christian, enjoys a great privilege. I I end by quoting Paul, who said this, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. May all of us see that as a gift of goodness from the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this revelation of your servant Job, who was deeply humbled with repentance unto life when you spoke to him and spoke to us through him. We pray that you'll teach us to trust you implicitly and to recognize that all your ways are good and with infinite wisdom you have ordained whatsoever comes to pass So help us now to praise you with grateful hearts, for we do ask it in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.